One of the, one of the things that we've learned as we, you know, we, we wander through this intermittent series on the parables is that uh, context really is everything. Uh, there's much to be learned if we were to take these stories as something independent of the rest of, rest of the scriptures. But if we're ever going to have a full understanding of what the author wants us to know, then we need to know what was happening leading up to this. Now, you know, this concept called authorial intent, and uh, the idea behind that is if we study the scriptures enough, if we look at them, uh, why is this parable in this part of Mark's gospel? What is going on? What is Mark trying to say to us? What is his intent? And how would his readers have read it? How would they have interpreted it? We can kind of mine all of the, the beauty and the truth that we have in scriptures. And lest we think that authorial intent is something independent of what the Holy Spirit is doing, we know that all scripture is inspired by God. So how has God inspired Mark to give us this parable? Why is it here? If we don't understand the context, we're liable to miss some of the deeper truths that we find in in the scripture. Now, this is true of all scripture, but it's, it's particularly true of parables because they're not just stories that Jesus tell, is telling. He's trying to teach something to the people that are around him. Sometimes it's his believers, sometimes the people that are following him, sometimes, most frequently, it is the, the Pharisees, the scribes, the chief priests, the elders, the leaders of the Jews. And frequently, when we see the Jews in scripture, it's not talking about all of the Jews, it's talking about those leaders, those spiritual leaders of the nation. So here's the context of this parable of the tenants, as it's called. We're almost halfway through Mark. Jesus has initiated his ministry. They've been on the road. He's been trying to teach. And uh, I mean, he's done miracles. There have been signs and wonders. Teaching with this incredible authority and they get up to Caesarea Philippi. It's about 90 miles north of Jerusalem, right on the border of Lebanon. And at Caesarea Philippi, uh, they make a turn. And Jesus tells his disciples for the first time that he has to go to Jerusalem and he has to die. Now, they don't get it. That doesn't fit in with their idea of what the Messiah is. They're pretty convinced that he's the Messiah, but that's not what this Messiah is here to do, to die. The Messiah is here to lead the nation to vindication. The Messiah is here to justify the people and set them up on the high place that they belong as the children of God. So they're not receiving that. And so as we go through chapters 8, 9, and 10, Jesus tells them two more times that he has to die. And the scripture tells us that he has set his face towards Jerusalem. Jesus knows why he's going to Jerusalem. Now that's about, it took, takes about six months for them to travel from Caesarea uh, back down to Jerusalem. Uh, so we're in the final stages of, of Jesus's ministry. He has predicted that he's going to die three times. Nobody's really getting it. And in chapter 11, he is at the top of the Mount of Olives looking down on Jerusalem and is about to enter Jerusalem at the beginning of Holy Week. Lazarus has just been raised from the dead. Uh, the news is in town. There are a million and a half people in Jerusalem. And Jesus is riding down the Mount of Olives on this twisted path. And he's on a donkey. That's kind of the first sign that things might be a little bit different with Jesus Christ 
than everybody thought they would be with the Messiah. So, and, and this is probably some of the things that led some of the people to turn away because he's on a donkey and that had significance. When a king was approaching a fortified city, he would either ride a horse or a donkey. If he was on the horse, it meant that he was coming to fight. If he was on a donkey, it meant that he was coming in peace. So Jesus is coming down the Mount of Olives, and, and the crowd is going, that's the guy everybody's talking about. He's on a donkey. How are you going to defeat the Romans with a donkey? Because they thought that Jesus was there to deliver them from the Romans, to deliver them from the oppression they had been experiencing for 2,000 years. He was going to be their, their conquering king. He was going to be the one that vindicated everybody, and he's on a donkey. So it's a first sign that something's wrong. What they didn't know was on the way down the Mount of Olives, he stopped. And it's about halfway down. There's a little grove right there where he stopped and filled with olive trees. And he turns to his disciples, and he's crying. And he says, oh, Jerusalem, you've missed the time of my visitation. He doesn't say you're going to miss it. He said, you've missed it. So Jesus knows that they're not going to receive him the way that they thought that they would receive the Messiah. So he's on the donkey. He's entering Jerusalem. There are crowds all over the place. Some of them are celebrating him. Some of them are celebrating because everybody else is celebrating. And this must be somebody important. Let's go down and join the crowd type of thing. And it's kind of hard to tell who's who. And another odd thing happens. He stops outside the Temple Mount, outside the gates that are going to lead him into the temple, into the Temple Mount, then into the temple, and he curses the fig tree. Now, this doesn't get lost on everybody because historically, through Scripture, the fig tree produces this rich fruit. It's a unique fruit, and it's used as a metaphor for the Jewish people used as a metaphor for Israel. So Jesus stops outside the Temple Mount and sees this fig tree, and it's got the leaves on it, and it looks like it should be producing fruit, and it's not. And he curses it. Then we take a look in Matthew, we find out that uh, when they go back the next day, the tree's withered. And so there are other people that are watching this, they're going, well, what's going on here? You know, he's on a donkey, he's cursing the nation of Israel? <laughs> I thought he was the Messiah. The next thing that happens is he goes through the eastern gate, and back then the temple doors were lined up with the eastern gate. So he walks through the eastern gate. There's all this celebration, all these people. There's a, a, an air of expectation, and the expectation is that when he gets to the temple, something incredible is going to happen. Now, most people are vaguely aware of the fact that there's been a lot of tension between Jesus and the Jewish leaders that they've butt heads a number of times. Jesus has, has humiliated them a number of times. But the general attitude was that all that would be taken care of. When he enters into the temple, he'll join with the leaders and give us victory over the Romans. So Jesus walks into the temple, and the courtyard, the outer court of the temple, which was called the court of the Gentiles, is filled with vendors. And there's this, this, there's this moment where everybody kind of holds their breath and says, this is our moment. And what he does is he cleanses the temple. And this nobody expected. But scripture tells us that judgment begins where? With the house of the Lord. 
okay? Now, the court of the Gentiles was designed to bring Gentiles into proximity to the Word of God and to introduce them into a relationship with God and then they would, you know, if they went through the whole process, they would get to go to the inner courts. And Jesus says, I'm not here, literally. He says, didn't you know that my father's house was a house of prayer for all nations. Now, that wouldn't have gone beyond the Jews as well because, as we all know, in their eyes, there were only two groups of people. There were Jews and Gentiles. Either you were Jewish and a child of God or you were a Gentile and a heathen. So when Jesus says, my father's house is a house for all nations, they're like, oh, no. (laughs) No, no. Your father's house is a house for Jewish people. And Jesus is literally saying to them, you know, I'm not here for the Romans. I'm here for you. You need to be cleansed. And it's going to start right here in the biggest symbol of your faith that you've ever had, the temple where you worship your father, the temple where you come in to practice your faith. We're going to start the cleaning right there. And, of course, the symbology is not lost on us because now we are the temple. And, you know, I think if we've got to be honest with each other, we're all waiting for God to cleanse the people around us. Maybe our spouse. Maybe our kids. Maybe our parents. Maybe our brothers and sisters. Maybe the people we're working with. Maybe the people that have a different opinion than we do on some things. And we're not expecting God to cleanse us. But that's exactly what happens in Jerusalem when he walks in. See, and and as soon as that temple, this is in chapter 11, as soon as the temple is cleansed, the scribes and the chief priests and the elders challenge Jesus' authority. And, And you can almost hear the indignation in their voice. That guy's got a lot of nerve coming in here to the temple. Doesn't he know who we are? You know, he's going to teach us something. He's not even a priest. What business does he have coming in here and telling us what to do? We've been running this temple for 2,000 years. So they say to him, they're going to trick him. They say, oh, Rabbi. It's not a gesture of respect. There's, there's sarcasm in their voice. Will you tell us by what authority you do these things? So Jesus, who's already outflanked him a number of times, says, oh, I'll tell you what authority I do these things. If you'll tell me what authority John did his baptism in. Now, there's a crowd of leaders standing in front of him. You can see this. The guys in front are standing like, "Uh uh-oh. And the guys behind them are murmuring to each other, you know, this is a problem. Well, what's the problem? The guys behind them are saying, look, here's the problem. If we say that John the Baptist is from God, then we've got to recognize that he's from God because John the Baptist was very clear that he was a forerunner for this man. If we say that John is not of God, the people are going to get upset at us because they think he's a prophet. We're in a jam here. And what they're concerned with is not really concerned about taking care of the people or, or recognizing Jesus Christ. They're concerned about losing their, their, their influence. They're concerned about losing their authority. They're concerned about the people rising up against them and the Romans saying, hey, this is a problem. We're going to have to remove you guys and put some fresh blood in here. So what they do is they go, we don't know. 
And Jesus, I, I mean, it's kind of God's humor. He goes, you know, well, then I'm not going to tell you where my authority comes from. So that's the context of this parable. Jesus has done all the miracles. He's made all the signs. I mean, just prior to the top of the Mount of Olives, he raised Lazarus from the dead. And the town knows it. I mean, it's a mile and a quarter away. Everybody knows that, that Lazarus came out of the tomb because Jesus called him out of the tomb. And, and there's this challenge to authority. And so now we come to this parable. And the question in the parable is, are you a landlord or a tenant? Now watch this. I, uh, many years ago, uh, I, got a, I got a ticket for rolling through a stop sign. And it was in Fairfax County. And uh, I went and stood before the judge. And I was about halfway down the docket. So I get to watch everybody go through it. And I'm, I'm going to plead no contest and pay my minimal fine and get out of there. Okay? And, uh, and everybody's like, I'm not guilty. And the judge gets upset. And, or I'm no contest. And the judge gets a little bit less upset. <laughs> Uh, and he's kind of hammering people down for $25 in costs, $25. You know, they're all minor infractions. And uh, I know I'm getting close. And he calls this lady up. And she walks up and stands before the judge. And the judge says, um, you have been cited with going 60 miles an hour in a school zone. She said, yep. He said, um, do you have any reason you were doing this? Nope. How do you plead? Not guilty? And the judge went, not guilty? I see the judge get a little red. And he said, what do you mean, not guilty? You said you were doing it. Yes, I was. Well, how, how are you entering? It's not, you know, we have to go to trial. Yep. Well, why are you pleading not guilty? And the judge is getting more red. And she said, because if I'm guilty and I get this ticket, I'm going to lose my job and I'll go on compensation and you're going to pay my salary. Now the judge gets really red. And he says, well, I'm not paying your salary. She says, yes, you will, because I won't go to work. And now there's an altercation starts with the judge and this woman. And their voices are getting louder and louder. And it ends up with the judge is bright red, and this woman is screaming at him. And he hollers, if you say one more word, I'm going to cite you with contempt in court and put you in jail for 30 days. And she said, well, let me tell you. And he hammers the thing down. He goes, 30 days. Bailiff, take her away. And as the bailiff is coming to her, she gets more indignant. And he hammers her down again, 60 days. And as she's going out the door, the bailiff is dragging her out the door, 90 days. And she's out the door, and she can hear her hollering in the hallway. And the judge goes, next person. And the bailiff goes, John Kavakis. And I went, oh my. <laughs> and I'm standing in front of the judge and he's, he's, he's bright red. You can, veins are popping out on top of his head. And he said, well, I've had a morning of no contests and not guilty. Which one are you? <laughs> and I went, uh, you know what? I'm guilty. <laughs> he said, good, $25 in costs. 
See, I wanted to be the good guy. I wanted to say no contest. I didn't want to admit my guilt. And when I saw the wrath of the judge, I thought, I don't want to incur his wrath. Let me just be honest with the guy. That's the question in the parable. Which one are you? When we read the parables, don't we do that? Don't we kind of assume the role? As a general rule, we kind of assume the role of the good guy and, you know, teaching the bad guy the lessons. Uh, So it's a question for this morning as we walk through this. Which one are you? That's the name of our sermon today. It's part of our series, Stories That Change the World. And this this, this parable has three key pivotal moments in it. Uh, We see the the owner's patience in verses 1 through 6. We see the tenant's violence in verses 7 and 8. And then we see the consequence that the owner levies on the tenants in verses 9 through 12. And all of those revolve around a key question that appears in verse 9. So I'll tell you what that key question is, but keep this question in mind as we go through this. Which one of these are you? So we'll take a look at the owner's patience. And it starts out here with verse 1. Jesus began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went to another country. Now, again, we have to hear this with these, these Eastern ears. We have to hear this the way the Jews would hear it. So the Jews, when a vineyard shows up in Scripture, it is generally a reference to the, the nation of Israel. And they know this. They know that Jesus is probably talking about them, okay? Um, now, one of the reasons they know it is because it's not only shown up a number of times, but it's very prominent in the book of Isaiah. If you take a look in Isaiah chapter 5, uh, you have the first couple verses in there about uh, they speak of a vineyard, there's a tower. It kind of sounds the same way that uh, Jesus is describing the vineyard here, uh, except this vineyard in Isaiah, and this is something that maybe was a little bit lost upon some of the Jews there. This vineyard that Isaiah describes is producing wild grapes instead of natural grapes. And, and the difference is the grapes that they used for make wine were cultivated. They were cared for. They were healthy. Uh, they were thick and they were juicy. Wild grapes are scrawny and they're not good for anything. They're not even really edible. Uh, so in Isaiah, we see this, that we have this vineyard established and then we see for the vineyard of the Lord, Isaiah says of hosts, is the house of Israel and the men of Judah are as pleasant planting. Now that's a little bit of a contrast to what's going on in Isaiah 5 but Isaiah wants the people that he's speaking to to know that they are God's precious children. Isaiah's job is there to warn them that if they don't turn their back, if they don't don't repent from what they're doing, that bad things are going to happen. So when Isaiah talks about the vineyard producing wild grapes, he's not saying, you guys are a mess. He's saying, you guys need to repent. The reason I'm here is to warn you that if you don't repent, bad things are going to happen. God is giving them a chance to turn from their ways and turn back towards him because he loves them. Now, if they don't, the passage is followed by a series of woes, things that will happen if they don't repent. These are promises of God. So, so the Jews know, in Jesus' time, the Jews know that the parable is about them. 
but they may be a little bit confused about which role they play in this, in this story. It's the same thing when, if you remember in 2 Samuel chapter 5, uh, David has taken Bathsheba as a wife. He's arranged to have Uriah killed. It literally, da- David is guilty of murder. Uh, and Nathan comes to him, and he says, Hey, king, you know, I, I, need, I need some input on something. Um, uh, there's a guy who had a bunch of sheep, and he was wealthy and well taken care of. And there was another guy that only had one sheep. And the guy with all the sheep took the guy's one sheep. And now the guy with the one sheep doesn't have any. And the one, one that has a lot of them just has more than he can ever use. What, what, what do you think about that man? And David was a good king. He's a good guy. You know, made some mistakes every now and then, right? Yeah, just like us. And, he's, and, and, and because he's a good king and he cares about his people, he says to Nathan, that guy needs to be punished. And Nathan says, that guy is you. Okay? That's what's happening in this parable. Okay? And it doesn't help that there are a lot of biblical historians that believe that at this point in the time that the, the very first perception the Jewish leaders would have had is that they're the landlord. See that? They own the land. The Romans have come in and occupied the land. And the Romans are taking the fruit and using it for their own good and the nation of Israel is left with nothing. So at first they see themselves as the landlord. And of course, as the story develops and we find out that the landlord is mistreated, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the chief priests, the elders, the scribes, they would be indignant about this. This is not what you do to a landlord. You know, something needs to happen with these people. They made the mistake that all of us make from time to time in assuming that when we read the scripture, we're the good guys. And if the Jews were the good guys, that would make the Romans the bad guys. All it really shows is that they really haven't been listening to anything Jesus has been saying. I mean, Jesus has told his followers, i got to go to Jerusalem and die at the hands of the chief priests and the elders and the scribes. And there's still this expectation that somehow everything's going to get made right. All the prophets that came before Jesus have said, if you don't turn back towards God, you're going to have a problem. Jesus shows up. He says, I'm the son of God. John the Baptist was before me. He pointed towards me. I'm the guy that all of your celebrations, all of your festivals are about. I'm the focus of your worship, and I'm here to redeem you. And all they could say is, no, that's not right. You know, that's not the way we understand the Scriptures. And if you happen to be in opposition to how I interpret the Scriptures, you're wrong, and I'm right. I mean, we've been interpreting the scriptures this way for 2,000 years. So, not only were they a little bit ignorant of their role, of course, they hadn't heard the whole story yet, but they were stubborn. They were stubborn. How many times do we read over passages of scripture that we don't agree with, and we just say, you know what, I don't agree with that. That doesn't really conform to the way I've always been taught. My teacher in Sunday school always taught me that all the animals on the ark were nice and that when Noah got off, it was beautiful. 
what all the cartoons said. Cartoons don't show floating bodies and decaying cities. The Jews thought they were the good guys. And that rose up out of their self-righteousness. So that's through verse 1. Then verse 2 comes. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. He's not asking for all of it. He's asking for some of it. And in verse 3, and they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Now, you know, this is is a slap in the face. It's an insult. Uh, This is a disgrace. And uh, as we just found out in our Sunday school class in the last hour, uh, you know, we're in an Eastern culture where honor is everything. And they dishonor the landlord. They dishonor uh, this servant. They dishonor the village the landlord lives in, the, the house of the landlord, the heritage of the landlord, and everything. Yet, here's what the landlord does in verse 4. Again, he sent them another servant. And they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. Now, now it's getting worse that not only have they rejected him, they have shamed him. And, and as such, they've shamed the landlord. So, in verse 5, it says the landlord sent another and him they killed. So you see this escalation in the way they're responding to uh, the messengers that the landlord's saying. It's getting worse and worse. Uh, Yet still in the second half of verse 5, and so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. Some go home, some of them they never see again. But the landlord's not done. We're looking at his patience. We're looking at the grace of the landlord here. Because in verse 6, he said, he still had one other. Now, the indication is that all of the servants of the landlord are gone. So, he's got one more. And who is that? It is his beloved son. And, and again, if you, you take a look at the language, uh, what it really indicates is it's his only son. This is the last messenger. This is the only hope. And he said to them, they will respect my son. Now, we've got to be careful uh, because there are metaphors all through here, and most of them are valid, but we've got to be very careful not to draw direct connections in the metaphors. The landlord, by now, we know is obviously a metaphor for God. Um, But as I say, we have to be careful making those connections um, because it sounds a little bit like the landlord is trying this. and seeing if they respond to it. And so uh, this is good for the story. It's not so good for our perception of who God is because God knew what the plan was all along. Jesus knew why he was going to Jerusalem. He knew he was going to die. Jesus knew there was no hope that the people in Jerusalem would go, oh, we finally believe you're the Messiah. Everything's fine. You know, let us bow before you. So the landlord's a little bit desperate, um, and he sends his son hoping that they will respect him. And here's the response, and this is where we see the tenants' violence. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. And what they're thinking is, if we can get rid of the family of the landlord, he'll have no choice but to give the vineyard to us. I want you to see what just happened here. Because there is so much self-righteousness infusing these people in their attitude 
that the further they get down this road, the madder they get. See, this is the ultimate product of self-righteous anger. People get so convinced that they're right. They get so immersed in what they think is the, the, the proper path to go that they begin getting mad at anybody who suggests anything different. So we've got to be really careful not to look at these tenets and say, what a bunch of dopes. Because we have the same tendency. We have the same tendency. Uh, now, I, I, I want to praise God. And you know, the church has the same tendency. I think, I think as a congregation, we do a pretty good job of trying to avoid this. I, I see the postings on the social media and the notes that go back and forth and the articles people send me. And you guys do a, a good job of not allowing your anger to get in control of you and do something that's not very godly. But the church in general is still struggling with the same thing that these tenants were struggling with. So convinced that they're right, so convinced that God is on their side, so convinced that they're the good guy, that they become angry at the people around them for not thinking the way they do. And the really funny thing about it is, they say things like, well, I'm angry at you because you get angry at people that don't think the way you do. You guys aren't tolerant, and I can't, I can't put up with that. <laughs> so, I mean, funny things start happening, don't they? So we've got to be careful because if we allow that self-righteous anger to start controlling us and controlling how we respond to the mission field, to the people that we're sent to, we can get angry and be guilty of murder. Jesus starts out Matthew with the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5 through 7, and he starts that out with saying, if you're thinking about being angry at somebody, you're guilty of murdering them. And it happens gradually to the point that we're so self-consumed with how right we are that we think that everybody else is wrong and they must be ungodly. Well, we're there to bring the message of God. So here's what's happened so far. Jesus coming to Jerusalem to die. He's doing everything that is contrary to what everybody expects. This is making everybody mad. His authority has just been challenged. And all that has happened because these leaders don't know who Jesus Christ is. He's been telling them they don't receive it. They don't know who he is. But here's the irony of this, because Jesus Christ knows exactly who they are. Scripture tells us that Jesus knows what's in the heart of men. Jesus knows exactly who they are. And so he's got them standing in front of him. He knows what's in their heart. He's told this story. He knows that they think they're the landlord. <laughs> so he says to them, what, what will the landlord do? 9A. It's a pivotal question in the entire, in the entire parable. What will the owner of the vineyard do? And, of course, they're thinking, well, he needs to exact his retribution on them. He needs to punish them. He needs to get rid of them. He needs to get them off the land. And Jesus says, he will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Well, again, the ones that are listening to him are, are still kind of in this mode of, of, well, yeah, he 
He should do that. The landlord should get his land back. We should get our land back. And then Jesus totally upturns all of their expectations and all of their understanding, and he says this in verse 10. This revelation comes. There's some hope, there's some expectation, in, and he's going to destroy the tenants and give the landlord, and all this stuff is going to happen. But then he, he says this. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And all of a sudden, the leaders are going, well, wait wait a minute. (laughs) Didn't he say that he was going to tear down the temple? Didn't we call that blasphemy? Why, Why would he need a cornerstone? The cornerstone is the beginning of a new structure. And and he's saying that, that the people who reject him don't recognize that he's the cornerstone. And we're rejecting him. I think he's talking about us. I don't think we're the landlord at all in this story. I think he's calling us the tenants. Now, this is out of Psalm 118. Okay, and, and the next verse says this. This was the Lord's doing. God has done this. God's in the middle of it. God is making him the cornerstone. And it is marvelous in our eyes. Now there's a problem. (laughs) The self-righteous anger inside the Jewish leaders begins to boil over. Why? They're stubborn. I mean, there's no other explanation. They're just stubborn. I'm not going to think that way. And literally, I mean, if they could voice everything they were thinking, it would be something like this. I know you've been walking through the land for two and a half years. I know you've been doing signs and wonders. I have heard the authority of the teaching that you've been giving us. We've seen the people who have healed. You you have healed. They've been here in front of us. We can't explain the blind guy that was blind from birth. And we keep on coming up with the idea that you're from Satan, but you keep on doing these incredible things. You're feeding people. You're, You're healing people. And we know that you raised Lazarus from the dead just yesterday. And we reject you. We know that all the prophecies said that this is what would happen, but we can't possibly accept that you are the Son of God because you, Jesus Christ, are not living up to our expectations. So we reject you. Verse 12, and they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people. For they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. They don't want to lose their power base. They don't want to lose their influence. They don't want trouble with the Romans. People turn against the spiritual leaders. The Romans come in. They don't remove the people. They remove the spiritual leaders. All the Romans want is peace. So they can collect their taxes. So we've seen these these three incredible moments that the 
the unfathomable patience of the landowner. We've seen the, the unfathomable violence of the tenants. And now we see the consequences of the landowner. And we saw how all that came about. You know, the turning point was when Jesus looked at him and said, what do you think the landowner ought to do? What do you think the landowner ought to do? Well, give the land to someone else. Why? Because Jesus knows who they are. Jesus knows who they are, and they are ungodly people. They're people that are not just rejecting him with their mouth, but rejecting him in their heart as well. And the gospel, the gospel goes to the lost. Well, these people are lost, but you see, they're lost, but they think they're well. They think they're healthy. They think they've got it all together. They think that God is on their side. And Jesus has told them, and will tell them again, that I'm not here to heal the well. It's a little bit of a sarcastic tone. You think you're well. I'm not here for you if you think you're well. I'm here for the sick. The gospel goes to those who are lost, those who are hopeless, those who are looking for redemption. It doesn't go to the self-righteous. It doesn't go to the falsely pious. People are walking through town going, thank you for making me not like that guy over there. It doesn't go to those who expect God's favor because of something that they are. It goes to the humble. It goes to the meek. It goes to those who, who are contrite before the Lord. So here's the question, now that we know the whole story. Are you a landlord or are you a tenant? What role do we assume in this? Be careful how you answer because on the surface it looks pretty good. I mean, the landlord is patient. The landlord is generous. The landlord is incredibly forgiving. They're murdering everybody he sends and he keeps on sending more people. Maybe they'll turn around. Sends his son, they kill him. The tenants, they're selfish. The tenants are angry. The tenants are ready to vent their anger. They're, they're enraged against all this. And the incredible thing is as angry as they are, and as much as they are rejecting this man and treating him unjustly, they are expecting the blessing of God. They're expecting God to take care of them. And that rises up out of their own sense of self-righteousness. I mean, who are you? Are you the landlord? Are you the tenants? I mean, it's almost like a no-brainer, isn't it? Here's the hardest truth. We're neither one. I mean, there's got to be something in here for us, right, as believers? We're not, we're not the angry tenants that are being cast out. We've been saved. We've been transformed. There's no condemnation for us. We're certainly not the landlord. We're not God. Brothers and sisters, we're the servants. We are the servants. We're the least likely ones to be pointed out in this thing. Think about it. We're the ones who are sent to the lost. We're the ones who have the message of God. We're the ones who are called to sacrifice everything in service to the master. We're the ones who are honored to be sent by him. 
Yes, we're honored because we belong to the Father. We've been marked by Him. We've been set apart by Him for service to Him, for holiness, for being messengers of the gospel. And here's the great blessing is in order for all this to happen, He did send His Son. He sent His Son to die in our place so that we could become those servants, so that we could become those messengers. And here's the incredible blessing on all that. Jesus did that. God sent his son when he knew who we were. He saved us when we were yet sinners. God knew exactly who we were, just like Jesus knew who these tenants were. And God sent his son anyway to redeem us and bring us back into his presence. What an honor to be his servant. What an honor to be asked to carry his message. And the great blessing we have, brothers and sisters, is that if anybody murders us, we're just going home to be with the Father. We didn't know who he was, but God knew who we were. And he loves us anyway. What incredible grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the honor of being your servants. We thank you, Father, for the burden of being your representatives, Father, knowing that we're unable to do that on our own, but by the presence and the power of your Holy Spirit, we can walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Lord, help us to be faithful to that. Help us to be true to that. Help us to never read the scriptures and assume that we're the good guys. Father, help us to understand, as I understood that day that I stood before the judge, that I'm guilty. Help us to understand that we're guilty. But by the grace of God, we are declared innocent. By the mercy of God, we are saved. Help us to be good servants, Father. Help us each to lay our beds, our heads on our pillows tonight and have the Spirit whisper to us, well done, my good and faithful servant. Lord, your love is unfathomable. And the more we meditate upon it, the more we we ponder it, the, the greater it gets, Father. We thank you for those little reminders that we have uh, in our lives that we're not yet sanctified. Uh, we thank you for Paul's words at the end of his, his career, Father, as he's waiting for the executioner to come. He says, I'm not yet perfect. And neither are we, Father. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your patience with us, Father, and pray that you continue to mold us and shape us into your likeness, continue to draw us unto you, continue to to make us messengers, Father, carriers of your love. We thank you for the incredible, amazing love that has made all that possible. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.